It's Wednesday, April 27th, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, the moon has a bit of a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde situation going on that astronomers have never been able to definitively explain. But a new study suggests it could be the result of a massive impact four billion years ago. Plus, yoga for your eyes? What is it and does it actually do anything? And the U.S. is officially saying good riddance to incandescent light bulbs. Here's some cool stuff for your ride home. The far side of the moon, or dark side of the moon, was such a mystery for most of human history, due to the moon's rotation and orbit of Earth lining up just so to prevent us from ever seeing the far side of the moon from Earth, that the phrase itself became synonymous with mystery and intrigue, not to mention a legendary album. But a little over a decade before said album was released, humans got their very first look at the far side of the moon, thanks to the Soviet Union's Luna 3 spacecraft. Luna 3 orbited the moon and brought back photographs that shocked the science community. The moon looked totally different on the other side. I mean, not totally, it wasn't like a different color or covered in trees or something, but when you put photos of the near and far sides next to one another, the differences are pretty stark. The near side, the one that we're used to seeing when we look up at the moon, has those familiar dark patches on it. Those are smooth, low areas called maria, the plural of mare, Latin for seas, so dubbed back in the day when astronomers thought that they might actually be bodies of water. The rest of the near side is brighter looking, highlands with craters. But on the far side, it's almost all bright, cratered highlands. Ever since this discovery in 1959, a lot of different possible theories have been put forth. Phil Plate, in his Bad Astronomy column at Sci-Fi Wire, summarized a couple. Quote, One is that after a Mars-sized protoplanet whacked the Earth hard enough to blast enough material into orbit to coalesce and form the moon, it actually formed two moons, a big primary one and a smaller one. The second one eventually impacted the moon, forming the thicker crust on the far side. Another is that when the moon formed, it was so close to Earth that the still-hot-from-the-giant-impact planet heated it, causing material to flow around to the moon's far side and condense, thickening the crust. In both cases, this is then linked to more volcanism on the near side, which changed the elemental abundances." But a new theory was just published in the journal Science Advances that proposes the discrepancy in geography and chemical makeup between the near and far sides could be a result of an all already known impact that occurred on the moon's south pole 4.3 billion years ago. Now, first, a little more background from Plate at Sci-Fi Wire. Quote, The near side has much more of the elements thorium and titanium than the far side, as well as what's called creep terrain. That stands for potassium, the symbol for K, rare earth elements, and phosphorus, K-R-E-E-P, creep. Eventually, it was discovered that the crust on the far side is much thicker than on the near side as well. Now, in the southern part of the lunar far side is an immense basin called the South Pole Aitken, or SPA, basin. The result of an impact so huge it staggers the imagination. It's approximately 2,500 kilometers across, over half the width of the United States. The impact that caused it must have been simply apocalyptic. It's one of the largest impact basins in the solar system. 
end quote. Now, this new study was conducted by scholars at Brown University in collaboration with Purdue, the Lunar and Planetary Science Laboratory, and NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab, and quoting Brown, For the study, the researchers conducted computer simulations of how heat generated by a giant impact would alter patterns of convection in the moon's interior, and how that might redistribute creep material in the lunar mantle. Creep is thought to represent the last part of the mantle to solidify after the moon's formation, and as such, it likely formed the outermost layer of mantle just beneath the lunar crust. Models of the lunar interior suggest that it should have been more or less evenly distributed beneath the surface, but this new model shows that the uniform distribution would be disrupted by the heat plume from the SPA impact. According to the model, the creep material would have ridden the wave of heat emanating from the SPA impact zone like a surfer. As the heat plume spread beneath the moon's crust, that material was eventually delivered en masse to the near side. The team ran simulations for a number of different impact scenarios, from dead-on hit to a glancing blow, and while each produced differing heat patterns and mobilized creep to varying degrees, all created creep concentrations on the near side consistent with the Procellarum creep terrain, or PKT anomaly. End quote. Lead author Matt Jones told Brown, quote, The question is how that heat affects the moon's interior dynamics. What we show is that under any plausible conditions at the time that SPA formed, it ends up concentrating these heat-producing elements on the near side. We expect that this contributed to the mantle melting that produced the lava flows we see on the surface. End quote. And Plate says that while this is all still hypothetical, the science checks out. Plus, it's based on so much existing knowledge that there's a lot of credibility to it. The hypothesis doesn't rely on a lot of possible scenarios, but rather builds off an existing one. And Plate raises another intriguing point. So much of that existing evidence comes from discoveries made during the Apollo era, half a century or more ago. As we embark on the Artemis missions and other space agencies also refocus their attention on the moon, it's kind of staggering to imagine just how much more we're going to learn about the moon, an object we still really know so little about in the coming years and decades. With how much we all stare at screens, there are tons of hacks and products to allegedly help prevent strain and other ill effects on our eyes. Like a lot of you listening, probably, I have blue light filters on my glasses, and my devices automatically go into night mode with less blue light after sundown. I've also long known about, but rarely practiced, the 20-20-20 rule. That is, every 20 minutes, give your eyes a 20-second break and look at something that's at least 20 feet away from you. But here's a new one to me. Eye yoga. Properly called Netra Vyayamam, eye yoga is a series of simple exercises you can do to relieve some of that eye strain. If you've come across any videos on social media about it, though, you might see all kinds of exaggerated claims about it actually improving your vision. That is not the case, however, as debunked by a few experts who recently spoke to Mike on the topic. Optometrist and Johnson & Johnson Vision medical consultant Danielle Richardson said, quote, There's very little credible scientific evidence that eye exercises can improve vision, end quote. But, she added, quote, Eye exercises can help with the issues commonly associated with staring at at a computer screen all day, including headaches and dry eyes. Our eyes do a lot for us every day, and it's easy to take that for granted. We're constantly using digital devices, reading, and consuming so much in 24 hours that it's normal for our eyes to suffer from strain and fatigue. Eye exercises have some specific benefits, although they likely will not be a catch-all for addressing your eye's health." End quote. 
But what does eye yoga actually consist of? I tried a couple of YouTube videos linked below, and it's mostly things like imagining a line in front of you and moving your eyes up and down or back and forth across the line and taking your eyes in circles. Some instructors pair them with breathing and meditation. I did feel a bit more energized and like my eyes were maybe a bit more clear, I guess you could say, after I did the exercises, although my eyes were also feeling fine before that, so maybe I should try it again at a time when they're really feeling worn down and strained. And if you're not a yoga kind of person at all, the whole idea might seem a bit woo-woo to you, but I feel like it's just woo, you know, only a little woo. And eye yoga does have its analog in actual optometrist-recommended exercises, specifically vision therapy. According to Dr. Richardson and Mike, the exercises prescribed in vision therapy, usually for patients having issues with eye muscle movements or focusing ability, do have documented evidence of improving vision in a clinical setting. There's not much research into eye yoga yet, and again, it probably doesn't improve vision, but since eye exercises overall are proven to have some kind of effect on your eye muscles, etc., you might want to check with your doctor before doing even these seemingly basic exercises being shared online. As Dr. Richardson put it, quote, eye exercises target ocular convergence, divergence, and accommodation, aka focusing ability. So you'll want to make sure you're targeting the right muscles based on your unique visual system and visual demands, end quote. But if you're wary about eye yoga, good news from Dr. Richardson, that 20-20-20 rule actually has research backing up its safety and efficacy. So if anything, you can start there. Yesterday, the United States Department of Energy announced a widespread ban on incandescent light bulbs that will begin in July of 2023, so manufacturers and retailers should be phasing them out now. Quoting Gizmodo, The new standards say a light bulb can only have a minimum energy efficiency of 45 lumens per watt. For reference, an average incandescent bulb has an efficiency of 15 lumens per watt, while a halogen bulb has an efficiency of 25 lumens per watt. Light bulbs that do not meet this standard have 75 days to be phased out of production as part of the enforcement leniency period as described in the Department of Energy's enforcement policy statement before widespread enforcement begins in July of next year. End quote. And while the ban is part of the Biden administration's efforts to cut carbon emissions by 222 million electric tons, the Department of Energy also points out that switching to LED bulbs should save the average household $100 per year. Interestingly, this ban has its origins in the Bush administration and should have gone into effect in 2020, but was reversed at the end of 2019 by the Trump administration. Also, folks in the comments section on some of the articles were asking the real questions, what does this ban mean for lava lamps? or heat lamps, like you might use for a reptile cage or for catering. Both use the heat produced by usually an incandescent bulb. And even if there are exceptions made for those purposes, as the Department of Energy's policy statement seems to indicate, but I am not a pro at reading legalese, it will definitely be harder to find those bulbs to purchase in the future. And there's really a lot of applications for which incandescent bulbs are the best option, mostly with older tech, which means we might be entering a bit of a growing pain phase as we try to find equivalent replacements with new, more efficient technology. But hey, phasing out the bulk of incandescent bulbs is definitely going to make an impact, and I don't think we could get to a true phase-out without the ban, so I guess this is what we've got to do.
Well, in one of the more creative yet simple uses of the public domain that I've heard of in a while, someone is about to start emailing out the novel Dracula in its original form, bit by bit. Now, if you haven't read it before, Bram Stoker's Dracula is an epistolary novel consisting of letters and diaries from various people all strung together to create a cohesive narrative. And unlike a lot of novels from earlier in the century, Dracula, which was published in 1897, was not originally serialized itself in its publication, although that would be a cool repeating of history if it were. I love serialized novels. But nonetheless, it is being serialized now by web designer Matt Kirkland, who will email out each chapter of the book to anyone who signs up on the Dracula Daily Substack on the day that the journal entry or letter was originally dated in the book. So the project will begin on May 3rd, the day of Jonathan Harkness's first journal entry in Dracula, and end on November 10th. Or it might end up that the journal entries and such are broken up a bit more than that, because here's how Kirkland describes it on the site, quote, Dracula Daily will post a newsletter each day that something happens to the characters in the same timeline that it happens to them, end quote. Now, if you sign up after May 3rd, you won't receive any back copies of the newsletter, but the archive will be available, and as Kirkland points out, you can always just go get a copy of the book from your local library to catch up, or download a PDF off the internet. It is in the public domain, after all. Also, Kirkland apparently did this last year, so you may have heard about it happening before, but hey, that just means that any kinks in the program should have been worked out. And this whole idea reminds me a lot of, like, mid-aughts internet. Now, I remember there was a performance of Rome Romeo and Juliet that happened over Twitter in real time according to the play, and it had Royal Shakespeare Company actors actually improvising as modern-day versions of their characters for photos, YouTube videos, and I think even a live stream hosted somewhere else. It was called Such Tweet Sorrow. And that was a couple of years before the Lizzie Bennet Diaries, the vlog version of Pride and Prejudice that went on to win an Emmy, and which is doing a whole, like, 10-year anniversary look-back thing now. I'll put a link to that and the original in the show notes. But that's it from me for today. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I'll talk to you again tomorrow.